Hi, welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And in this episode, it is episode number... 69, dudes! Yes, we're up to episode 69. It's a lot to swallow, that, isn't it? We never thought we'd get to there. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. So, Andy, um, how you been? It's It's been a week, hasn't it? It's been a quiet week. Um, I've had to self-isolate again. Great. Which makes me worry about the uh, upcoming softening of, of rules that you can now hug people. I don't know if that's, that's anybody, but you can just hug people in the streets. But... You know, uh, lockdown is easing tremendously. Well, I won't be hugging any of my neighbours, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, everything's starting to ease out. Cinemas have definitely got the thumbs up to reopen, and we will talk about that a bit later in the show. And talking of later in the show, in this particular show, we have our deep dive into Bill and Ted. Excellent, dude. We've been waiting for this one, haven't we? We We've have. Been We've waiting. scheduled this We've been one. counting the episodes. <laughs> Especially to get to this one. As Andy said, we'll be talking more about the opening of cinemas as we have a special guest. We'll be getting joined by uh, Tristian Cooper, who works for one of the biggest cinema chains in the UK, at the head office film buying department. So we'll get to find out what exactly a film buyer does. Trust me, it's not easy. We'll be giving you our usual reviews and insights into all the films that you can currently see on the platforms. Andy, what are you planning on reviewing today? So today I have reviews of Honest Thief, which is the new Liam Neeson film, and Netflix's Monster. But before all that, Andy, in his other role as Newshound, has been doing that. He's been hounding the news to bring you all the latest information, gossip, speculation in this segment that we call, quite frankly, the news. We really need to find a name other than the news. <laughs> we do, and every week we keep saying that, but we, we don't. So for now, it's the news. Any suggestions, email them in. Let us know. Any suggestions for what we should retitle the news. And if it's a good one, we will title it that. And we'll even name drop whoever tells us it. But anyway, let's go through some news, shall we? So as we traditionally do, we're going to start off talking about... Marvel. Marvel. More Marvel. Um, so, over the past few months, there's been all the speculation around Spider-Man No Way Home. We already know that Alfred Molina's definitely involved because, well, he he dropped all the spoilers in an interview that he did. Oops. And we know that Jamie Foxx is definitely involved. But everyone kind of assumed that that meant that Maguire and Garfield were involved. Now, we reported about four weeks ago to say that Maguire apparently knows nothing of this. And now Andrew Garfield, in an interview over the past week, basically said, no, this is news to me. In fact, hasn't Andrew Garfield gone on record by saying, as far as he knows, he's not a part of uh, the Spider-Man sequel? Yeah, I mean, in his words, he said, listen, I can't speak for anyone else but myself. Like, they might be doing something, but I ain't got a call. I did not get a call. Listen, I would have gotten a call by now. That's all I'm saying. Now it's possible, and we know what the secrecy is on Marvel project, projects. It's possible that he's remaining tight-lipped and he will be involved. But given there's been absolutely no verifiable proof of his or Maguire's involvement, and all that we've had is initial rumour and speculation, which everyone's then spun and reported on as though it's fact, it's very possible that he, he, he isn't actually appearing because... Do we really need multiple Spider-Men? 
yes, we're getting their versions of the villains, but that doesn't mean that we have to have those versions of Spider-Man because that will take away, in my opinion, from the current MCU Spider-Man if you start forcing more Spider-Man alongside him. That makes sense. I mean, if, if the other Spider-Men are going to appear, uh, Maguire and uh, Andrew Garfield, I'd, I'd like to be, be surprised. And you know what? The main problem that we've got, which is what we do, uh, uh, and it's what all the sites that we, we look at and check is is they have a tendency to drop spoilers. I, it's ruined a couple of movies for me. Sometimes I'd be happier not knowing. So if he, if they do yeah. appear, fantastic. If they don't appear, then that's that's just been fan speculation that's run amok. And, and we know what happens when fan speculation runs amok. Uh, in other Marvel news, after last week's speculation on Blade, which, if you remember, we reported was going to be for Phase 5, well, details have come out saying, guess what? The plan is to start shooting in July 2022, which makes it be, oh, a phase five starter. It's almost like I can predict these things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's funny because uh, you, um, you uh, got in touch with me when you saw the uh, the story rise up uh, out of Marvel's <laughs> golden hands. And uh, you were so happy with yourself because you, you said it on the show. <laughs> Just just a mere day uh, after it was released. So yeah, I mean, it's it's always going to be uh, it's always going to happen. You know, they wouldn't have announced it if it wasn't going to happen. What we look forward to now is finding out who's going to write it, who's going to direct it, and and the rest of the cast. So we're just going to have to wait. They'll be making those decisions probably as we speak. As you know, we're into the first quarter of this year. Pre production will be hot and up and running, as well as waiting to know. What's going to happen with the Fantastic Four? Loki will also debut on a Wednesday rather than a Friday, breaking that tradition that they've been doing with the Marvel TV series. Uh, Wednesday, the 9th of June, is the date to mark in your diary. This is going to cause complications for us. Because yeah, we will inevitably want to talk about each episode, but it's going to be a week later that we talk about each each episode. <laughs> and you know where it's going to drive me crazy? Because Friday night is family night, and we sit and watch something gathered around the old goggle box with a good takeaway and Loki was planned for Friday. They're messing us up. I can kind of understand why they're going for Wednesday because Loki being the Norse god, the leader of the Norse gods is Odin. Odin's day is Wednesday. There you go. Or, or it could have been Thursday, which is Thursday. I'm just saying. I'm just I'm just trying to make a point. But not Fish and Chip Friday. They're not going to have Loki be on Thursday. Oh, are we thinking too much no into chance. it? Please let us know. I probably are, but, you know, I, I just love the fact that they've gone for Odin's day because he is, you know, the adopted son of Odin who thinks that he should be ruling. But anyway, um, in additional Marvel news, because there's always loads of Marvel news, Ms. Marvel has finished wrapping the filming today. The news came out on this. So it's now just post-production waiting game until we get to see it. And there's going to be anticipation of a tease trailer. And I suspect that at some point it will come as part of a Disney Plus coming later in the year promo reel that we'll start to see footage. Oh, I can't wait for Miss Marvel. We saw the costume drop and it looks good. I mean, I know we mentioned this, but, but the costume looks comic accurate. Also saying that, Hawkeye has just wrapped. So we've got that to look forward yep. to as well. So I don't know. I believe that Hawkeye lands first and then we get Miss Marvel. That's, yes, that's I... the way that I th I've kind of figured it. But we know Miss Marvel is going to be uh, going to be released to tie in with the Captain Marvel sequel, The Marvels. Something that I'm not anticipating. Have you seen the trailer for Venom, Let There Be Carnage? I can tell by the tone of your voice that you were strangely unimpressed by Venom. 
let there be carnage. Yeah, I did. You know what? I I wasn't overly enamoured by Venom. I, I'm I'm glad I saw it on TV because I I could kind of sit and you know you get a different viewing experience when you, when you watch things on TV. As I said to you last week, I'd have rather have seen Nomadland on, on a big screen, but. It yeah. just kind of washed over me. The same way, to be honest, that, that Mobius kind of washed over me. The Let There Be Carnage trailer, oh my. It made the first Venom film look like an Oscar winner in comparison. It was, it's done nothing to sell the film to me. It appears to be packed with slapstick humour of a low quality. It looks like a carry-on superheroes film. That's how bad. Uh, the lobster scene from the first film seems like a genius moment of cinema in comparison to Eddie and Venom making breakfast. And it's clearly aiming for a PG-13 rating, skewing to 13 being the maximum age to enjoy this nonsense. It looks atrocious. It's done nothing for me. I'll give it a fighting chance, just just basically because it's Andy Serkis. Mm, I'm probably going to avoid it like the plague. Uh, on the subject of trailers, though, and moving away from Marvel, uh, the trailer for The Green Knight dropped today. I, I saw that land. I've not had a chance to see it. And when we've spoken about this, I've got a trailer that, that has blown my mind to discuss with you. Well, The Green Knight is from director David Lowry and A24, and it's drawn from the poem of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it looks sumptuous. It's medieval setting with a very mythical adventure drawing from Arthurian legend, telling of Sir Gawain, played by Dev Patel, and his quest to rid the land of the Green Knight. There was an initial teaser trailer way back before first, first lockdown that whetted my appetite but this one gets to show us a look at some of the beasts that he encounters the landscapes the cast uh alicia vikander playing essel joel edgerton's in there as lord sean harris as king arthur i can't wait it's going to arrive late july early august internationally and this is a film that we mentioned a few episodes ago when we were talking about excalibur how much i love arthurian legend and this looks it looks like it shares kinship with Excalibur in the look, the style, the tone. Can't wait. Absolutely can't wait. So sticking with A24, and they've got a slasher film called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies on the way, which will see um, Borat's sequel breakout, Maria Bakalova, and Pete Davidson uh, starring alongside Lee Pace, who's been recently added to the cast. And in addition, Rachel Sennett, Chase Swee Wonders, and Connor O'Malley round out all the cast of the film, which already included Am Amandala Stenberg and Mayala Herald. Helena Ragin is set to direct what's being dubbed a secret slasher with plot details kept tightly under wraps. Shooting is slated to kick off next week with A24 fully financing and producing. And to say that I'm a huge fan of A24's output would be an understatement. Uh, they deliver low-budget variants on genre films that really stand out and become amongst my favourites of the years that they get released. So this is one that I'm looking forward to, not just because of A24, but because of those names involved. So I saw a trailer that, that blew my socks off this week, and that is for Netflix, Sweet Tooth based on the DC comic. Uh, it's produced by Robert Downey Jr. I never read the comic. I know very little about it, but the trailer is... Netflix has all the money, and all the money has got thrown at this particular series. It looks absolutely terrific. So if you've read the, the comic, you'll, you'll know more about the setup and the premise than I do. It's set in some post-apolyptical future, and it seems to be about a child who is half-human 
and half stag, half deer. Um, that's all I got from it. But it looks absolutely amazing. And I, I, I can't wait. I think it lands really, really soon on Netflix. If the series is half as good as the trailer, then I'm, I'm just about to be blown away. And, you know, Robert Downey Jr. did the Perry Mason uh, series for HBO that appeared on Sky Atlantic. And so his producer chops are great for me because that was fabulous. So can't wait for Sweet Tooth. Hopefully we'll be talking about it in, uh, in a week or two. Illumination Animation Studio are currently working hard on a Super Mario Brothers animated movie for Nintendo, which is due next year. And it looks like Nintendo are so pleased with the progress so far that the global president for Nintendo... Shuntaro Furukawa has said that they're looking at other IPs to bring to the format. As he said, animation in general is something that we're looking into and not just this franchise. Although the ways we are expanding our IP are increasing, we are very, very careful about where and how our IP is licensed. We're not deploying our characters and worlds merely to increase public exposure. So don't expect a wave of Nintendo films to suddenly arrive because they still want to keep the quality and keep the brand image to that Nintendo kind of level. I mean, it went through the, the dodgy phases of the animated TV shows way back in the 90s that weren't very good. They're keen to avoid that and actually try to grow their brands into the multimedia. But it's sounding like they're, they're very happy with the Super Mario Brothers animated movie. So hopefully it will wash away the lasting memories of that Bob Hoskins live action film. You know what? It's strangely, it's one of those films which is really awful. I'll, I'll grant you that. But I seem to have a, a fond memory of it. Maybe, maybe I was drinking too much when I saw it. I don't know, but I've just got a, I've just got a fond memory. Maybe the fact it was just so awful, and it, it ended up <laughs> killing careers. That movie, the, the directors never went on to anything else. You know, it, it's it's just one of those films. We've all got one. I've I've got a bit of news, and that's some casting news. So Daisy Ridley is teaming up with the, the great Ben Mendelsohn, and they're part of the cast for Neil Burgess' next film, a psychological thriller called The Marsh King's Daughter, and it's adapted from Karen Dion's bestseller. Daisy Ridley's, she's an interesting actress that I don't think has really had chance to really showcase what she can do. So hopefully this kind of partnership will see her get to cut her acting chops because I feel that she's been poorly done by with um, a certain franchise that kind of went a bit downhill. And I'd like to see Ben Mendelsohn, because he's, he's capable of so much. Uh, just push some of the roles that he does. He, he, he's gone through this stage of just playing the villain. You know, he did it in Rogue One. He did it in uh, Ready Player One. Uh, and to some extent, Captain Marvel, even though the role became something else. But when you see him in something like the Stephen King adaptation of The Outsider, you see the full force of him being just a fantastic actor that I'd like to see him get out of just being the atypical Ben Mendelsohn villain. Oh, he, he was magnificent in Baby Teeth, if you remember when I reviewed that film uh, yes, a few months yeah. ago. Absolutely marvellous performance. Uh, so he's he's another great actor that is so much better than the roles that he generally gets. Fans of Supernatural can get excited for the next season of The Boys as uh, the, the fan favourite Jensen Ackles has revealed a sneak peek of his appearance as Soldier Boy in this third season which is in production at the moment. Uh, he co-starred with Jared Padalecki on Supernatural for 15 years, where he had to maintain a clean-shaven, short-haired look. So his new look for the boys is decidedly more hairy and bearded than when we last saw him. The series will also mark a reunion of sorts with the boys' showrunner, Eric Kripke, 
who created and served as showrunner on the first five seasons of Supernatural, which, in my opinion, are the only seasons worth watching. The shot, unfortunately, doesn't show him in costume as the overly patriotic superhero character who serves as a Captain America-esque kind of parody. Kripke has teased that he presents something of a threat to Homelander, and unlike him, he has been around for decades of Void's history. A release date for the third season hasn't been set yet, but now that it's in production, we should start getting some more news on when to expect it landing on the service in the future. The Golden Globes next year will not be showing on NBC, as the broadcaster has pulled out all plans to air them over the controversies surrounding the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the awards. NBC have long been the broadcast partner for the awards and pay around $60 million each year for the rights to air the ceremony. And a statement from NBC says, we continue to believe that the HFPA is committed to a meaningful reform. However, change of this magnitude takes time and work and we feel strongly that they need time to do it right. As such, NBC will not air the 2022 Golden Globes. Assuming the organisation executes on its plans, we are hopeful we'll be in a position to air the show in January 2023. Now, for those who are unaware what the controversies are, everything stems from a report in the LA Times exposing the questionable practices of the HFPA financially, including bribes that were taken in order to make certain decisions, and a terrible record of diversity and representation within the organisation. Very strict membership, and there's no black members as part of them. At that point, I knew the, knew the rest. I wasn't aware of that part of the, uh, uh, of the allegations. Now, the HFPA are making steps to reform and address the multiple issues that the expose uh, highlighted. Restrictions on gifts and payments to members are the first thing that they're tackling. And there are steps to extend membership out and become more diverse. However, there's no time frame being assigned to any of their proposals so far. And according to some reports, it's a bit wishy-washy. So until considerable measures are put in place, NBC will refuse to work with them. At the same time, Tom Cruise has sent back his three Golden Globe Awards that he got for Jerry Maguire, born on the 4th of July, and Magnolia. And whilst he's the only celebrity so far to have done it, it's very likely to see others following suit as the award brand now has a a taint stuck to it. Well, I've seen over this week Scarlett Johansson coming out to say that some of the interviews that she's done with with some of the members wasn't even thinly disguised but came across as sexual harassment. And of course, now Netflix are in conversations as well to say that they are kind of following suit as far as, uh, as the Golden Globes stand at the moment. So very sad that in this day and age, it's taken an expose to reveal practices from organizations that should know better. But, you know, these are the days that we live in. And what else frustrates me is when people go, uh, you know, talk about being a woke generation. But this is this is what we're waking up to. These, this kind of practice in, in this day and age, which is ridiculous, that we, we should have moved on several years ago and be much further forward than we are now. I hate this whole idea that woke is something that we shouldn't be. I hate when people think that calling you woke is an insult because all that woke means is that you are acknowledging that things weren't right and you want to put things right. So on that basis, we're happy to be woke on this show. We're happy for embracing the fact that nothing's been perfect in the past. We can be better going forwards. Yeah. Uh, Lord and Miller are to produce a film adaptation of Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition, a pandemic story. The book follows several American medical visionaries during the early days of the COVID breakout who tried to sound the alarm about the dangers, but were kind of disregarded 
and it, the focus will be on three main characters inside the White House, a biochemist, a public health worker, and a federal employee, whose efforts helped to keep the death counts lower than they would have otherwise been if they hadn't been there to try the best. Uh, Lewis previously wrote The Big Short, which became a film directed by Adam McKay, and this new adaptation is aiming for a tone similar to All the President's Men. We're going to get hit by a whole slew of, of pandemic movies, and, and this one at least is setting stall out to do something different, tell a, a different part of the stories. I mean, we will reach a saturation point when we've we've had our fill of pandemic movies, but the good ones were the ones that will stand out. Sticking with issues in the spotlight prominently, uh, after the success of the Small Axe series of short films, director Steve McQueen and the BBC are teaming up again for a three-part docu-series called Uprising. The series is going to examine three events that took place in 1981. The new crossfire that killed 13 black teenagers, the Black People's Day of Action, which saw over 20,000 people march for rights, and the Brixton Riots. And it will explore how these three separate events intertwined and paved way for a process of race relations to be defined, drawing on testimony from survivors, investigators, activists, and more. As I said when we were talking about the Small Axe series, when it was getting shown each week, that sadly the issues that it was showing from decades ago are still very much present in society today. And that's why these lookbacks towards things four or five decades ago to make us realise that we've not moved forward enough are so important. McQueen has a fantastic vision and I'm interested to see this docuseries that he'll be working with the BBC for. It was constantly one of your neat things, wasn't it? Every mini-movie was a neat thing. And if you've not checked them out, they're all still there on BBC iPlayer. Definitely well worth checking out. As regular listeners will know, we're big fans of the Mission Impossible films here. We covered them as a deep dive a few episodes ago. And Tom Cruise continues to up the game in every film as it goes along. He's been talking recently with Empire Magazine, uh, covering the upcoming seventh film in the franchise. And Cruise has said that one specific stunt was the most dangerous of his career to date. And bearing in mind, this is a guy who's throwing himself backwards out of planes. He's done all kinds. He's done pretty much everything. The scene which he's talking about involves a motorbike driving on a ramp. And this was the one that earlier this year, there was the shots of the ramp going off the cliff edge that we got to see, which he was doing it. And as Cruise has said in the interview, if the wind was too strong, it would have blown me off the ramp. The helicopter filming the stunt was a problem because I didn't want to be hammering down that ramp at top speed and get hit by a stone. Or if I departed in a weird way, we didn't know what was going to happen with the bike. I had about six seconds once I departed the ramp to pull the chute and I don't want to get tangled in the bike. If I do, that's not going to end well. I mean, this guy gives his everything to these films and this is what makes the Mission Impossible films stand out in amongst a plethora of spy thrillers, espionage capers and action adventures. Cruiser's dedication to getting the shots by actually doing the stunts himself makes them so much more real. I cannot wait for this film and indeed the eighth film, which will go into production pretty soon. So have you heard this story about Taiki Waititi starring in a new TV series? in which he plays uh, Blackbeard the Pirate. I've not heard about that one, no. <laughs> well, it's kind of suddenly hit, hit, hit news, so it's still, a bit of a, uh, it's still a bit of a scoop. So basically, so it's a brand new TV series. I'm not sure which platform it's coming from. It's called This Flag Will Kill You. I think that is the title. They want to portray Blackbeard as a crazy, insane, dangerous human being, and there was only one actor 
that they could go for, and that's Taiki Watiti. <laughs> it could be uh, what we do in the uh, what we do in the mast, couldn't it? Really, I'm, and I would be in on it in in <laughs> seconds. Know very little about it when it's due, but it sounds absolutely absolutely intriguing. Definitely an intriguing. Um choice of casting blackbeard is always shown as being fierce and determined and ravaging and pillaging how taika waititi is going to approach it i'm not sure but i am on board i am on board that pirate ship i have been press ganged onto that deck of that ship so as with most netflix big releases Zack snyder's army of the dead which first reviews are starting to come out at the moment and they're looking okay to pretty good we've been anticipating this for some time feels like it should already be out it should be out next week doesn't it yeah well um if you're in one of the 200 locations across the u.s that has a cinemark cinema then you have a chance to see it one week early as it's getting a limited cinema release throughout that chain as an exclusivity that no other chain has maybe the snyder fans will all race out and make it the biggest selling film of the year i only hope we get a similar release in the uk when cinemas open in ooh, just over a week's time because I am so ready for this film. I've been ready since uh, they announced it um, because it, it's it's a big looking movie. You know, it's a, it's a good hundred million dollar project is this one. It, it sounds as though Netflix are invested in it to do all the spin-offs, the anime series, etc., etc. But I, I feel I should be watching it this weekend. It feels like it's, I'm ready to see it. And uh, on similar related news, because uh, I've just mentioned Snyder, so it's, it's inevitably going to spin off into... A little side rants. The Snyder fans are now apparently reporting that Zack Snyder's Justice League has had over 250 million viewings on a Chinese streaming platform, which sounds pretty darned impressive. However, the source comes from a passionate Snyder fanboy vlogger and also comes from a screenshot of the service, which unfortunately includes streaming of the trailer before the purchase is made and also works similar to YouTube in that you could watch five minutes or something and it's considered a watch. And then you go back to it later and watch another five minutes, and that's a separate watch. So the 250 million could just be five people watching it multiple times or watching it in the episodic chunks that it's kind of been designed for. Uh, it's poor reporting again, no verifiable source, but that's not stopped all the typical online media from picking up the story and trying to quote it as fact. And also there's been speculation thrown around that Cavill has unfollowed Warner Brothers and DC on Twitter and has followed Marvel on Twitter with notoriously uninformed insider Grace Randolph tweeting out that he's unfollowed them and claimed he didn't support the Snyder Cut, despite the fact that there was actually footage of him supporting the Snyder Cut in a Snyder attack about the actor. However, some smarter tools in the shed have actually done their job and reported and investigated before actually doing anything here. And apparently Henry Cavill never followed DC and Warner Brothers on Twitter anyway. So how could he stop following them? And kudos to the sites that actually did their research and checked things out, because this is a common rant that I have on this show, that I am fed up of people who just jump on a report to get it out there before the trail goes dry. I respect immensely anyone who looks into it and does some actual journalism, because that's what you're getting paid for, journalism. Moving on. On DC News, Tarnessi Coates' Superman film, produced by J.J. Abrams, will not be connected to Cavill's version, but is going to exist as a standalone project. And reports say that the current script plans to see a 20th century setting focusing on Kal-El, which many reports have said Clark Kent, but that's not been mentioned in any official source, only the name Kal-El. So it could still be 
Calvin Ellis. Uh, and the film is seeking a director and is committed to a black director and lead actor. The script is expected to be finalised later this year, and it'll be 2023 or 2024 by the time we see the film. Are we going to put money on at this stage that it would be Michael B. Jordan? I know it's early days and he's not said anything yet. He's not seen the script, etc. But are we going to put money on on the show that it'll be Michael B. Jordan? I, I think it's a I think it's a good bet. I mean, there was all the speculation and rumours around it that it, he was going to be involved. If it looks like this um, whole Amazon Tom Clancy project isn't going to go ahead, he'll need something else to um, jump onto, and he'll be a great choice for it. He's got the physique for it, and he's got the he's got the on screen presence for this kind of role as well. I'd like to see it. Moving on to Blake Lively, who I refer to as the luckiest woman in Hollywood because uh, look who she's married to. Um, she's going to star and produce a new feature adaptation of the Dark Horse comic Lady Killer for Netflix. Diablo Cody is penning the screenplay, which sees Lively play Josie Shuler, a perfect 1950s housewife who has a secret life as a highly trained assassin for hire. Yeah, I saw this. I saw this mentioned. Uh, Netflix had previously collaborated with Dark Horse on Umbrella Academy and Polar and the upcoming Mystery Girl. And with this and the Miller World brand, it seems that Netflix are carving their own little corner of comic book adaptations whilst everyone else is playing with DC and Marvel. Uh, did you get around to seeing uh, Jupiter Legacy? I'm watching it episodically, so I've only watched the first two episodes so far. And I'm, I'm like, I think it's got the tone right. I was worried that they were going to go more down the boys' route for the visual spectacle of it. But no, they've, they've kept it true to the comics. They've kept it faithful. And one thing that always stood out in the comics for Jupiter's Legacy was the art design, the, the costume designs and everything. And I love the fact that it perfectly emulates Frank Quietly's work in a visual media. I'm, I'm on board with it and I'm liking it. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I, I get exactly what you say. I think that's the thing that I did like about it is it does capture Frank quietly, but it, it, you know what? It's just not resonating for me. I'm only one episode in and I'm finding it very, very hard to get into the next one. So we'll see. Uh, uh, watch this space. We'll see. Dave Bautista is going to be joining the cast to the sequel of Knives Out, which is currently titled Knives Out 2 uh, from Ryan Johnson and Netflix. Sounds like Ryan Johnson has as much trouble about naming sections as what we do. We have the news. <laughs> He has Knives Out too. Uh, shooting's going to take place this summer and the film will once more be a detective tale with Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc solving the case. Bautista and Craig previously shared screen time in Spectre. And Spectre was way back in 2015. I know. It's been I since know. 2015. This is nearly one of those periods where it's been the longest time between Bonds and this one's been shot and it's not been recast. So, yo. Uh, and just while you're talking about that, Andy, some breaking news. Edward Norton has now joined the cast of Knives Out 2. You heard Ooh. it here first. This is this is filling out to be a cracking film. Can't wait. Uh, Dave Bautista has also announced this week that he is saying that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is likely to be his last Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I mean, as he's pointed out, he's not getting any younger. So he can't play this, you know, muscular beast of a character indefinitely. And it kind of makes sense. It'll be a shame to see him go to think he's brought so much life to that character. He's played it brilliantly. I wouldn't like to see it replaced. I'd like to see him just like allowed to retire. Yeah, agreed. Director who we tend to like, Paul Verhoeven. The trailer for his latest film, Benedetta, has landed. Now, the biopic is about Benedetta Carlini, a nun in the 17th century Tuscany, who was heralded as a visionary before she later became embroiled in accusations of fabricated miracles, homosexuality, and deviancy, which led to her being imprisoned for four decades. 
It's based on the novel Immodest Acts. The film was described at Cannes as erotic, mischievous, and political vision of the Middle Ages. Right at Paul Verheeren's alley, so to speak. I'm looking forward to this. I do have a lot of love for Paul Verhoeven. He sometimes doesn't get it right, but most of the time he does. Last two pieces of news. Uh, first of all, the character of Red Sonja has been cast. Stepping into the role is Hannah John Kamen, who fans of Marvel films will know from her turn as Ghost in Ant-Man and the Wasp. Sonja is getting a big screen outing directed by Joey Soloway, and it was previously brought to the screen in the 80s in the guise of Bridget Nielsen. Oh, I remember that one so badly. Yeah, and badly is the term to use. The character is an amalgamation of various characters from Conan creator Robert E. Howard, and it was first brought to life in the 70s Marvel Comics Conan series. Brutally assaulted and left for dead, Sonya is saved by a goddess and granted special powers, which she uses to exact bloody and brutal revenge on her tormentors before becoming a heroic wandering defender, a female Conan. The only question I've got is, will she have the armoured bikini? Because it was never, never very practical. I've, I've never understood um, what the point of an armoured bikini is because it leaves so much flesh open that you're going to get killed anyway. Uh, I imagine they'll go for more of a... You look at more modern approaches to that kind of sort and sorcery epics, and the armor is a lot more fully clad but molded. So we'll wait to see. We'll wait to see what it all looks like. But I'm quite intrigued, and maybe this is maybe this will be the start of us being able to get some Conan adventures on the screen as well. And also to deliver something that is, um, you know, is is what we've all been looking for with the great sword and sorcery film, because everything we've seen so far, bar maybe the first. Conan the Barbarian, the John Milius one, it's always fallen a little bit short of, of that expectation. So, fingers crossed. And finally, last week we spoke about George A. Romero, and this week news has come that one of his lost films, The Amusement Park, is going to be released by Shudder on June the 8th. Uh, the film has been believed to be lost in history, but a copy was recently de- rediscovered and restored in 4K. The film was commissioned by the Lutheran Society as a project to showcase the issues of ageism and elder abuse. And Romero made the film about an elderly man that finds himself disorientated and isolated with his struggles manifested in the form of large crowds and roller coasters. The film was shot nearly 50 years ago and starts off Shudder's Summer of Chill season, which will showcase a new film from the service each week. And that is the news. So you're listening to The Film File. You're listening to your favourite podcast. And how do we know it's your favourite podcast? Because you've subscribed. Wait a minute. What are you saying? You've not subscribed? Well, then I suggest you do so. Just hit the subscription button and become a fan favourite of The Film File. Every time you subscribe, Zack Snyder makes an extended cut of your life. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so. Over on Twitter, at Film File UK. Instagram, Film File UK. Or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. So with Simmers imminently due to reopen on May the 17th, it's uh, it's going to be an exciting time. But how are cinemas dealing with this reopen? We have a guest here at Filmfile Studios, and we are being joined by a film buyer for one of the biggest leading cinema groups in the country, a friend to the pod, Tristan Cooper. Tristan works down in that London as a film buyer for one of the major film cinema chains. So, Tris, tell us a little bit about, well, first start off, give us a bit of history. Tell us how you know uh, both uh, Andy and I from from years gone, as we just discovered, chatting off air. Okay, so I started in the cinema industry back in 2001. 
I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I tried to find some DJing work, but it can be quite tricky sometimes. And I just saw an advertisement for uh, the local cinema, which at the time was UGC. Um, yeah, it was UGC Sheffield at the time. And I just went along, got interviewed, and I got hired. And that was the start of my journey. Um, I honestly didn't think I would still be there 20 years later. It was, and I admit this freely, at the time, six months. Just work there for six months, get some cash, try and find some DJ work and then move on with that part of what I thought was going to be my career. But instead, um, I just, I I became so ingrained in what was going on in the cinema so quickly, made friends so quickly and enjoyed working there. It was absolutely brilliant atmosphere to work in that I just uh, stayed longer than I expected. 20 years longer than I expected, as it turns out. Uh, So I worked at Sheffield for four years, actually. It always feels like it was longer, but it was four years, 2001 to 2005. And then in 2005, I got the opportunity to actually work for head office, which is uh, where I am now and where I've been for the last 16 years working down in London. So you you moved in away from cinema and into the world of of cinema buying. Explain to the listeners what uh, a cinema buyer does, what a film buyer does. Okay, well, I'm still heavily involved in the cinema industry. It's just a part of the cinema industry that I think most people don't even know exists because when I joined Sheffield, I certainly didn't know that it existed. Um, Very quickly, as I was learning all the... We used to have this uh, phrase, uh, well, it was actually what we were called. We were called multitaskers, I think it was, or multifunctionals was the terminology that was used for us. Yeah, multi-something or other, definitely. And so I was learning box office. I was working on the floor. Um, I got roped into doing the like little DJ sets on Friday and Saturday because of my background as a DJ. Um, and uh, yeah, working concessions and doing all these other little things. And also I ended up doing stuff back of house, including learning about how the film times were structured. Uh, there was two chaps there called uh, Chris Green and Dave Burnham, uh, both of whom I'm pretty sure you guys have fond memories of as well. Uh, and they sort of introduced me to that side of it so I was and I learned that there are that there are there is a process for getting films into cinema and it involves um, at the head office of every cinema chain a film booking team who discuss with film distributors to play their films uh, on a weekly basis they basically negotiate terms and deals and say okay you've got film a film b and in a couple of months you're going to be releasing film c we agreed to play these films because we feel that at these cinema our cinema chain and at these certain cinemas that film's going to have a lot of interest and people are really going to want to come and see it i became a what was known as a film administrator and I was doing a lot of special screenings. It was an absolute pleasure to arrange the press screenings for people like yourself, Lee, uh, from that part of the industry, because you, you know, you guys had come in with you all enthusiastic. You'd be watching the films, you'd be reviewing them, and that was again another side of it. I never really knew how that worked. You know, how are, how do people in that industry get to see films so far in advance? And I learned, oh there we go it's screenings like this and i was a part of arranging that with our marketing team at head office as well so that was a wonderful little learning curve for me um and yeah and it just all kind of over the course of 2002 to 2004 certainly kind of just snowballed as my role at the cinema changed and evolved yeah, over my 16 years that I've been doing this job, things have actually changed. But one of the fundamental basics is that distributors, they negotiate hard when they really want something and they want things to go their way. And uh, it's our job, really, to 
I mean, my, the, the basics of my job is I have a core set of cinemas that I take care of on a weekly, weekly basis. I book their films in, I do their film times for them, and I sign them off, and I, you know, I coordinate with my bosses and distribution to make sure that we're playing the best lineup in that, those cinemas that we can, and that distribution are happy with their representation. You know, the, the, the worst kind of conversations is where we try to A, reduce a film on its number of shows, or B, take a film completely off. We used to have a saying where on Monday, distribution can be your worst enemy, but Tuesday morning, your best friends again. And that is certainly true. You know, you get through the Monday of negotiating and putting that lineup in there that you're happy with, that distribution's happy with, and sometimes cinemas, because quite often cinemas will come back to us and say, actually, we need to do this, we need to do that. And so we listen to our cinemas as well, and we get feedback from them, and we try and make, we try and make sure everyone's happy. But of course, you know, that's not always possible. So we, we're coming out of, of this dreadful pandemic. We had a, a year and a, and a half of it, and it's affected clearly the cinema industry in ways that were unimaginable. You know, shutdowns, then reopenings, uh, films scheduled to release, literally those, those dates changing. It'll be ridiculous to say how difficult that's made for your job, but I will ask it anyway. So how difficult has it been to, to think ahead uh, and with ever constant and sliding sliding dates, how how have you managed to pull through that? It's been a tough, tough time. Uh, it's been 13 months, although we did reopen at the back end of July, like the majority of cinema uh, chains. However, and I can't go into too many details about this, as I'm sure you guys appreciate, but um, as a chain, Cineworld had to close a little bit earlier than everyone else. We closed our doors on October 9th. But yeah, it was tough for us. Certain decisions were made. Um a lot of people put on furlough. I personally was put on furlough, came off furlough for the two months we were open, then put back on furlough. Went back to work this week. We're working on getting our lineups ready for May 19th and hopefully having an exciting assortment of the films that are going to be available in mid, in fact, yeah, just a week or so from now, we're going to be reopening. Uh, and it's nice to see everyone else getting ready to open in the next sort of week to two weeks as well. People setting their dates and saying to customers, we're reopening our doors, we're going to be safe because all the measures we put in place in August and September are still there. So I believe we're going to have 50% capacity. We're going to have the rules about masks and queuing, and we're going to make it as safe an environment as possible. Uh, as I'm sure, yeah, like I say, every cinema exhibitor is going through, working through those stages right now, like we did back in June and July. But Lee, just coming back to your point, yeah, those never-ending shifting dates was just, you know, Bond was the first film to, big film to move. And that was the, the, the big hazard sign going up going like okay this is now very very real for our industry what's next disney moved everything sony moved everything everybody just started to move everything so i was like okay and we went into lockdown it was it was tough through the summer when we came back i know you guys have mentioned on the show tenant wasn't the savior of cinemas flipping good film i thought but it just wasn't quite the blockbuster that we needed a little bit too cerebral for some people maybe a bit too clever for its own good but you know that's what nolan does but unfortunately uh, there w there wasn't anything to counteract that i think it's a shame that films like mulan weren't released at the cinema because that would have been a nice counterbalance to tenor in the industry we've seen three or four blockbusters can live side by side and can still make lots of money but again it's that key element of you know, offering the customer choice and giving them reasons to go to, as we say up north, the pictures. Go visit the pictures <laughs> and go see something nice, you know. So when it was just Tenet, and that was kind of it, and you had some smaller films like Unhinged and Proxima, but nothing that would really get people, I've got to go to the cinema. And more importantly, I've got to go to the cinema 
and maybe take that risk because of course that's going to be, that was in the forefront of everybody's mind whether you're a worker or whether you're just someone who is going out to the supermarket or whatever choices you were making so yeah what's happened in the cinema industry and certainly within my company i know that has been has been the same for millions of people in other industries as well it's kind of ironic that this in a way has pulled us all together i think we've all got this in common now in in all in all walks of life not the best thing to pull us together <laughs> i'd have preferred the full-on zombie apocalypse let's just go for broke but <laughs> but instead we we get this pandemic i know andy would as well <laughs> yeah but instead we've at least got something that we know we we can see the end of now with you know we can feel a bit more positive and that's the thing talking to people in the industry everyone's just like oh it's so great to be back it's so good for you guys to be back yeah we're, let's get talking and arguing about film releases again you know so but we're getting back to doing our jobs you know and, uh, and also the fun side of it. Today, I got to see a film that's out in about a week and a half's time um, and get to see it ahead. So um, saying all that uh, and, and all the goodwill that you're saying that's gone with it for other cinema chains, et cetera, et cetera, what is the sense of anticipation like right now from audiences, from the industry? Do we feel as though this is where we would crossed into the hope that, that cinemas are going to get back to some sense of normality? Yeah, I think there's certainly a feeling of hope in the industry. However, it's tempered with, uh, tempered, sorry, with a, a, a lovely lashings of reality. Cinema's going to get back on its feet. It's, it's actually survived worse than this. It survived two world wars. It survived TV coming along. It has survived the uh, social media revolution. It, cinema always finds a way to survive. Because I use this analogy um, before. People always used to think that theatre would die off, but theatre's been around for centuries and it always finds a way. And the weird thing is, is that in 2019, theatre had had its biggest year of box office gross in, of all time. And we as a cinema industry, UK, domestically, China especially, before what happened in China, obviously, but in 2019, it was the biggest box office at the cinema ever so so um those naysayers who said like oh cinema's dead and it's been dying for years sorry guys you don't have all the facts to hand actually cinema's quite strong and i think it's got the chance for revival now yes i mean we can talk about streaming services if you wish because they are now a part of our daily lives and they and it's here to stay uh and the whole thing about release windows where a film will show exclusively in cinema for 16 weeks and then go to home entertainment or to a streaming service or whatever those are now going to be drastically reduced and it's going to be a very different landscape but i guess in a way it's just giving customers and audiences the chance to just view things differently it's just giving them more choice and we know, the three of us, that there are cinema files, cinema goers, who they have been for 13 months chomping at the bit to get back out there and resume that part of their life. Cinema is still one, if not the cheapest form of entertainment that you can do individually and as a group. I know people complain about ticket prices. Well, we do have a business to run. And I know they complain about concessions prices. Well, again, we need to make profit so that we can keep functioning. That's how business works. Anyone who runs their own business understands you know the you know the outlay and the profit margin and all of that business um but you you know you you go out for a night at the pub you can spend a heck of a lot more than you could at the cinema you go to a pop concert to see your favorite band or your favorite artist it's going to cost you a fortune for those tickets football fans spend a lot more than you the average cinema goer so again i just think cinema is so accessible it is still 
I think the best way to watch a film is to, you know, the best way to watch a movie is on the huge screen with a great surround system. And you may be surrounded by all these strangers rather than your family stuck on the sofa. But after 13 months, haven't we had enough of that? <laughs> it's great every so often. But do you really want to keep doing that? So we, we seem to be making the path. How's that changed your your job then when you're looking ahead with these changing schedules and you're looking at what's coming up after May 17th? What is it that, that you've got to think about first and, and how much more difficult is it now? Um, it, it's, not per, it's not difficult per se, but the... Um... The release schedule has changed and, and still keeps changing and tweaking slightly. Even even this week, some more films have actually been brought forward. Um, just as an example, uh, Escape Room 2 was meant to be next year, but now it's come forward to summer. And so there's still a little bit of shuffling going on. Uh, Top Gun famously was going to be summer of this year, wasn't going to move. Well, now it's moved to November. <laughs> um, and uh, a big kids film has gone from this summer. Minions to The Rise of Gru is now next summer. But films like Jungle Cruise, uh, Hotel Transylvania 4, they are there for the family audience through the summer months. And we've got some great action like Wrath of Man and The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. So the stuff for adults, the stuff for kids. So in, in a weird way, Lee, things feel for us like they're actually getting back to normal because distributors are putting out a lot of varied content and a lot of different film titles. Um, now, how's this summer going to play? Well, I'll, if I can be truthful for you, we don't really know. Uh, when we reopen our doors in the next few weeks, and of course on the second week we go into uh, May half term, and we've got some big films there like Peter Rabbit 2, for instance, that is going to be the first bona fide blockbuster. Now, what's that going to do? Well, Tenet was supposed to be a £40 million film last year, did £17 million in the middle of a pandemic. Still a decent result, but not quite what we were hoping for. I think Peter Rabbit 2 has got the potential to be that one that, that breaks the box office and builds confidence. And I think that's what it's down to now. In the next few weeks, people are going to start being able to venture out. Next Wednesday, for, is it Monday? Sorry, we can we can hug each other, hug ourselves if you want to, but you can hug people again. <laughs> you can get out there. And cinema will be at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. Now, of course, the key is to make it enhancing, attractive, and make people want to go back to the cinema. And again, having a, a selection of, of a varied and a wide range of films is going to be key to that, um, which is something that we're working on. I'm sure the bookers at Light and, and View and Odin, everyone's going to be working on that. What's the best lineup we can get? Because we want people to come back. So yeah, for the first few months, it's going to, I think it's going to be a lot like that. But there are films there that I think will will generate interest. Like Spiral, you know, fans of the Saw franchise, I'm sure are going to come out for it. We've got Conjuring 3, which is another franchise film, two very good prior entries, and people were going to be, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> are going to be interested in seeing the third installment. So, uh, and there's many, many other films, and, you know, you're going to get the chance to see a lot of Oscar winners. And one big film for me in June, which I think now has got such potential to not only be critically successful with, with people who love film, but also financially successful, and people actually going to the cinema to see it, and that is The Father. Because not only is it, in my opinion, one of the best films of the year, I'm very privileged to get to see it back in January, but twice, in fact. But um, now that Anthony Hopkins has got the plaudits and the film has got so much good word of mouth, I believe it can only succeed. It won't fail. And it will be the tester. And it's not a blockbuster. No big visual effects. You've just got a beautiful story well told. Great characterizations and characters played out by you know a group of actors who i believe i know anthony got most of the plaudits but every member of that cast just hits it and nails their role 
to perfection, in my opinion. And that's what's exciting to see. And again, on a big screen, it will work perfectly. So it, it sounds optimistic. And we're all optimistic. We have to be because we're cinephiles, all of us, and, and film geeks. <laughs> so saying that, it's it's a, an interesting looking summer. The schedules are all over the place. But what is it? What's that one thing that you think, A, will excite an audience? And, and secondly, you're looking forward to the most? A multitude of films. Uh, like yourself, Black Widow. I'd rather see that on a big screen. Also, and I know it's not the best franchise in the world, but in terms of people's excitement, Fast and Furious films that over the last few years, they've delivered in terms of mm-hmm. spectacle. Crazy OTT and silliness. I mean, if you've seen the new trailer, they literally do go into space or at least suborbit in this one. Absolutely mental. But you know what? As I watched that trailer, I had such a big grin on my face thinking, if I see that in my local IMAX, I'm going to have a great two hours. I know there won't be much plot and characterization, but it's going to be fun and it's going to be a great visual treat. Uh, So films like that I'm looking forward to. The big one for me, I guess, is Bond, and it's going to be Bond for a lot of people. I'm a huge James Bond fan, really excited. Can't believe that it should have been out almost two years ago now originally um and due to uh some natural delays and then the pandemic but we're finally getting it on september 30th this year um fingers crossed it won't move again <laughs> and then i have to say christmas is looking fantastic with the new spider-man film west side story <laughs> to completely juxtapose my love of big action and marvel films downton abbey 2 is going to be out this christmas and i love the downton tv show i know andy you said you didn't really get into it but the show was great the first film was really really brilliant uh really really brilliant God, sounds like i'm 12 um but the sequel <laughs> is i think something we can get excited for releasing at christmas time it's a film that just hits every demographic from young to old uh and will play through into 2022 for for months and months um Plus, we've got another Matrix film coming along. So, yeah, I think it's going to be, um, just going back to your previous question, actually, it's going to be quite an interesting summer, potentially a slow start. But the back end of this year, or Q4, quarter four, as we refer to it, has got the potential to, dare I see it, return us to the kind of cinema box office levels we saw two years ago, potentially. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, indeed. And if you want to hear more of that chat, longer, unedited version of the discussion, will be available as a bonus episode this weekend. So until those cinemas reopen, of course, we're doing the deep dives. This week's deep dive ties in to this week's episode number. It is, of course, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, a motion picture so grand, so magnificent, and so vast, it spans 7,000 years. No way! Yes way! But it starts with Bill. I'm Bill S. Preston. Who was Joan of Arc? And Ted. Noah's wife? We are in danger of flunking most heinously tomorrow. A force from the future. Can we go anywhere we want at any time? You can do anything you want. Is putting history at their fingertips. Let's reach out and touch someone. They're traveling through time. How's it going, royal ugly dudes? Put them in the iron maiden. Excellent! Execute them! Bogus! If you guys are really us, what number are we thinking of? 69, dudes! <gasps> Bill and Ted's Excellent! Excellent! Excellent adventure. Party on, dude. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is a science fiction comedy film series created by Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. Chris Matheson, by the way, the son of the great Richard Matheson. 
starring as William Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan are Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves, respectively. Two metalhead slacker friends who travel through time and, in the second film, go to hell. The first film came out in 1989 with the sequel hitting in 1991. And last year, we had the third in what who knew was going to be a trilogy, Bill and Ted Face the Music, coming out in 2020. The first film introduces to Bill and Ted, who are trying to write a history project. Rufus, a guide from the year 2688, arrives back in time to provide them with a time machine which allows them to travel back in time and meet historical figures in order to learn about key historical events. If Bill and Ted fail to pass, the teacher will have to flunk them and Ted's father will transfer him to an Alaskan military academy, which will end the promising career of a band called Wild Stallions and in turn destroying a utopian future built around their music. I first saw this film, oh, I think it was probably early 90s, as it had a, a delayed release due to shenanigans with the studio and even longer before it got a UK release. I saw this in the States. I'd heard a little bit about it. Keanu Reeves was on the up for his more sort of independent projects, but had that makings of being a big star. As soon as I saw Bill and Ted, I fell in love with the concept and I fell in love with the characters. These two initially idiotic teenagers had so much warmth and charm uh, and I recognised the need to be in a band uh, as I'd struggled as well to make my own band successful. And I fell in love with them. And I love them to this day. I know Andy and I differ on the last movie, but I've loved them through all their adventures. Bill and Ted are just fantastically lovable characters, especially played by these two actors. And it's a film series that I just cherish. Andy, when did you first meet Bill and Ted? It was after Bogus Journey had come out at the cinema and gone. I didn't catch it at the cinema. I caught Bogus Journey when that came on home release. And we rented out both the first and second films because that's why I didn't go to see Bogus Journey on the big screen. I hadn't seen Excellent Adventure. And time travel films generally hold an appeal to me. I'm a huge sci-fi nerd and I love time travel. And I love the intricacies and the theories of time travel. And I love the fact that this just throws all theories to the wind and breaks its own rules constantly. The rules of time travel are stretched somewhat in this film, but it's all done to create a sense of fun from the start to the joyous ends. The first film, Excellent Adventure, and re-watching it this week made me realise what it was that I loved about the first two films in particular. The characters, Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, dumb wannabe rock stars with no brains and pretty little ta talent but with this bizarre destiny to bring about universal peace is such a bizarre concept and the casting of winter and reeves fantastic but the casting of rufus by george carlin what a bit of marvelous casting a minor role but carlin is just magnificent within it but it's an utterly daft film throughout in a charming kind of way that makes sure the laughs are genuine. And even when at the expense of how idiotic Bill and Ted actually are, it's never mean spirited laughs. It's always you're laughing along with their antics rather than laughing at how stupid they are. Their dumbness is part of their charm. They have a pure, innocent view of the world, like a childlike view that they don't see the negativity. They just take everything as it is. And Winter and Reeves play into that thoroughly. Their very demeanour and facial expressions, when they're not even the focus of the scene, when they're just sided off as someone else is doing stuff, shows 
all their innocence and their wonder in the spectacle that they're part of. That's the true joy of it. It's their reacting to the events as opposed to being a part of them. And you love the characters and you can kind of understand how they could become a focus for universal peace. Because if everyone adopts that childlike viewpoint of the world, we could all live in perfect harmony together. And that's what makes such a dumb comedy something much, much more than what it actually is. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what kind of has given it its sort of classic quality. You've got the wide-eyed uh, uh, puppy dog looks of both of them and, and the, the, you know, they're not smart characters and, and they play that all the way through, but they're utterly likable, utterly quotable. I mean, I came back, as I said, I saw this in, in the US before it hit England and, and you were using the word dude and uh, and all those expressions, which were, were kind of vernacular way back in the late 80s, early 90s. But it's the charm of the two leads that, that carry on. It is a silly film. But it's a silly film that transcends it because they are, it is so, just so darn likable. Uh, nobody gets out of it without being silly. And it, and it plays, as you said, and even more so in later films, plays a very, very roughshoddy over the ideas of time travel. But we don't care because we just like Bill and Ted so much that I, I know that you, you had problems with the third film. But through all their adventures, it's these guys that we just like and we like to spend time with them. So after the kind of the initial success of Bill, uh, Bill and Ted, there was a, an offshoot animated series in which initially Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves voiced and was very good. Uh, it was uh, uh, that kind of early 90s animation, but it was very good and kept Bill and Ted alive. And then there was also um, a, a TV series played by different actors, which was short lived. But that led into a much anticipated sequel, originally known as Bill and Ted Go to Hell. It ended up coming out as Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, in which now Bill and Ted are still struggling with their girlfriends, uh, the princesses that they brought back from the Dark Ages, and Chuck Dinomalos, a resident of the utopia of the future, which is sick of it and sends a pair of Bill and Ted robots, doubles, back into the past to kill Bill and Ted, and which he actually does. So Bill and Ted are killed, go to hell and face the Grim Reaper, but managed to best him at several games, including battleships, in a spoof of the classic Seven Seal. It's a darn silly film, but again, it's the charm of Bill and Ted, Winter and Reeves, that makes it work. And it also made uh, a big hit out of a Kiss track as well. Did you like uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey? Oh, I loved Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Both Excellence Adventure and Bogus Journey have a beautiful blend of physical comedy and witty zingers of dialogue that stay with you afterwards. Like you said, there's so many quotable moments from both of those films. And the casting, I mean, in Bogus Journey, Denomalous played marvellously by Joss Ackland, who was notorious behind the scenes of pretty much anything that he was in, of not really getting what he was part of. And you get the feeling that he just breezed through this, not quite understanding what he was actually involved in. And then you've got the great William Sadler as the Grim Reaper, who becomes a character that you kind of wished had his own offshoot spin-off movie series. He was absolutely brilliant. He gets the physical comedy aspects, him falling from heaven moments when they're brought back to life. Always, always makes me chuckle. But even on the first film, the physical comedy, such as Ted falling down the stairs, and then by the time Bill gets down there, he sees the suit of armor getting impaled. But Ted had just fallen out of the armor. And it's like, what? <laughs> but, you know, you've got the quotes. I mean, 
the episode that we're calling this is 69, dude, because 69, dude. Put them in the Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden? Excellent. Absolute nonsense, but all quotable stuff. Bogus Journey, cleverly, didn't focus on time travel too much. Yes, it was someone from the future wanting to change the past, but it was the metaphysical journeys through heaven and hell that this film focused on, and it had a lot of fun doing it, leading up to the Battle of the Bands that was their second thing that they had to succeed in in order for their perfect destiny to happen. And much as like with the first film, the showcase event at the end, the Battle of the Bands at the end of this is another showcase of moments of perfection. It's You've got the time travel meddling all takes place in there. Like, but then I had another gun. And uh, but then there's the cage. But I had the key. And I love that absolute ridiculousness of you are planning future time travel meddling by putting things in place that you can use now. Brilliant. Absolutely destroys my brain every time that I watch it because I always get too obsessed with time travel <laughs> in any time travel film. But I love it for it. Like you say, the film then took a couple of decades out. It, it was it was rumoured and mooted for a couple of decades that there would be another film. But the second film, Bogus Journey, sadly hadn't scored that well box office-wise for it to warrant going straight into production. And so in recent years, as in last year, we finally got Face the Music. And I wanted to like this. I really hoped to like it. But when that first trailer landed, that was when I started to get uneasy because what I worried was that it was just going to be a hodgepodge of fan nostalgia moments. And when it came to watching the film, and we both just talked about it, and we both came at it from different points of view, and I've revisited it this week, and I still, I've still not got any love for it. It is just fan nostalgia moments to me. It does nothing new. It doesn't add anything to the franchise. It's just repeating the comedies, repeating the moments. And generally, it's a film that is entirely forgotten within minutes of the end credits running. Whereas the first two films, I can quote lines of dialogue. When I was watching Excellent Adventure, my daughter was in the room and she kept turning around and said, would you stop saying the lines before they happen? <laughs> and she's like, can't help it. But with Face the Music, I can't even recite one line of dialogue after watching it twice. You know that I differ on this, um, but there are points that you're saying that I do agree with. So Bill and Ted Face the Music, which came out last year. So they're now middle-aged parents, yet to realise their musical future and therefore the future of a utopian society that will follow. They're warned by the great leader and Rufus's daughter Kelly from the future. They only have a short amount of time in their present to create the greatest song or reality will collapse. Uh, Bill and Ted decide to travel to the future to try and find their song, but are hunted by a time-travelling robot. Their daughters, Billy and Thea, uh, go about going back in time to try to put together the greatest band of all time. What I liked about it, and I agree with a lot of what you say, I think it's forgettable, especially in light of Face the Music. I like that it was about, I like the fact that they were middle-aged guys who never made it, that they, spoilers, they ended up not writing the greatest song and they had all this pressure to come back and do something that was great, but they failed at. I love the daughters. I thought Billy and Thea were fantastic. And I would I would certainly watch a, a, a spin-off film starring Billy and Thea. But what I did like about it is it's about creativity and it's therefore that the future for all of us, what makes a utopian society and makes peace is that it's creativity and it's music and it's it's art. And, and that's what I, ju I just warm to because of that. 
it, it doesn't quite work in the way that the previous films work. It's always a pleasure to see Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter back on the screen alongside each other because they have a great repartee and that that works and, and still works in this movie. But it's that, that sense that all the evils of the world will be put right by creativity. And for that, I applaud it. It's not perfect. Do I love it as much as the previous two? No. I did find it hard work the second time I saw it. But I do like that element. It's it's still better than the live action TV series that you mentioned, which you can track the all the episodes down on YouTube. But I urge people not to do this to yourself. It's not worth it. The animated series, by all means, track that down, embrace it, love it. Comic book series, absolutely brilliant. Just don't track down that live action TV series. And if you're going to watch the animated series, only watch the first season because those are the episodes that uh, Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves voiced. After that, the guys from the TV series did it. So before we move on from uh, talking about Bill and Ted's, obviously we've got a guest this week. So, Trist, give us your quick thoughts on the Bill and Ted's franchise. Uh, Were you introduced to the first film first or did you watch Bogus first? How How you've enjoyed them? And, you know, one, two and three. Okay, uh, well, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, I first saw in July of 1991 when I was a student at Norton College on one of those nights that when students get together, especially students like me, we were an actor group. We got together and we had basically a movie night and somebody rented out Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Didn't know who Alex Winter or Keanu Reeves was at that time. Um, they, of, of course, they were at the start of their careers. And we watched this film and for the 86 minutes that it ran, we just laughed and laughed and thoroughly enjoyed it it was absolutely brilliant and it's to this day one of my all-time favorite films certainly one of my favorite comedies from the 80s um it's so crazy such a high concept i mean a lot of stuff in the 80s were high concept you know my all-time favorite films ghostbusters high concept in a nutshell but bill and ted was just superb and i instantly fell in love with those two characters and re-watching it again a couple of days ago uh, any excuse to watch that film i absolutely love it um so uh yeah gets uh, if i had four thumbs it would get four thumbs up from me um however two years later or that year in 91 for me uh, bill and ted's bogus journey came out and i must admit it, it is a it is one of those situations where a sequel tries to be bigger and better and un- ultimately fails at both. Uh, it's still a decent film to watch. It has its funny moments, but there's quite, I don't know, there's just something missing. I enjoyed William Sadler as Death. He was a great introduction, but I couldn't stand the robot others. Didn't like them. And also the fact that uh, Bill and Ted are meant to create this music that changes the universe and unifies everybody. They just did a cover version of God gives rock and roll to you at the end which is not a bad song but i was expecting an original piece because if these guys would go on and fulfill the destiny that rufus tells them about in the original film don't don't be doing it with a cover version i mean how 90s is that but don't do it with a cover and and not of a it's not the best rock and roll song either that you could pick um as for the third one i mean i know there's a lot of love and a lot of hate for it when it came out last year um i quite enjoyed face the music but what i found was i didn't belly laugh at it i just kind of smiled and giggled and went "Hmm, okay it's okay uh it's not uh that great a film but what i did like about it was the fact that i got to spend another 90 minutes with bill and ted and with those two dudes you know, playing the roles that I think, I mean, with Alex Winter, he disappeared into writing and producing. We, we didn't see him in acting that much at all over the last three decades. Keanu Reeves, of course, is a completely different kettle of fish. Um, and I think, um, I think some people have already uh, stated this, but in the last couple of years, I've just got this idea in my head that uh, because it deals with time travel, 
I do like to think, and you might know where I'm going with this, Andy, that John Wick is actually the, oh, yeah, you're nodding, is the alternate version of Ted if he went to military school. Um, <laughs> I just I just love that. I have never heard that theory, but I love it. <laughs> but I love that notion that had Bill and Ted one not gone the way they planned, that's right, Ted, you're going to military school. And he changes, <laughs> becomes a Romanian, Bulgarian fuzzy background of his you know i, I love that idea but no I, the, the bill and ted for me is kind of major hit kind of a miss somewhere in the middle in terms of the three films uh, i do like them as a franchise quite easy to watch i'm going to watch bogus journey uh, and face the music again later this week but really really um happy to watch bill and ted's and when you sent me the list sandy of films you were looking at over the next few weeks that first one i saw i was like oh and on episode 69 as well you know uh, just, yep, that was the whole idea. That's fantastic, <laughs> you know. What number are we thinking of? It's almost like we planned this Six, thing. Yeah, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to throw in the guitar riff. <laughs> there you go. That's all you need to know about Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. So, Andy, what have you seen this week on the streaming platforms? So, this week, Honest Thief landed on Amazon. FBI. You have $9 million in stolen money? Yes. I've robbed 12 banks and I'm turning myself in. We can take this for ourselves. Let's do it. Whoa, whoa, hey. I want to clear my name. Your word against theirs. I need a confession. No one will ever believe you. I'm coming for you. Three, two, one. Ready to confess? Honest thief. And at this point, we've come to expect certain things from a Liam Neeson film. And with the exception of the occasional low-key gem like Made in Italy, he normally gives exactly what we expect. For a while, his post-taken shtick was growing tired, but now it's something that I kind of look forward to as a bite of simple escapism. And with Honest Thief, we are in pure, familiar territory, and very comfortably so. Neeson in this film plays Tom Carter, a notorious bank robber nicknamed the In-N-Out Bandit, a name he hates, um, who's found love late in his life and wants to do the right thing, confess to his crimes, serve time, return the money he stole and live a normal life. Contacts the FBI and explains his deal, but the department get a load of hoaxes claiming they're a legendary bandit. So sceptically, they send two low-rank agents to check his story, but those agents see an opportunity to make off with the money and Carter's life is put in danger. Neeson is comfortable in this kind of role by now, and the pacing and runtime doesn't outstay its welcome. It makes this a simple pleasure of an action thriller. Even the presence of Jai Courtney doesn't bog this film down, and Jai Courtney usually bogs every film down. The film pops along. <laughs> yeah, he only succeeded once, didn't he? And that was in Suicide Squad. Yes. The film pops along as a bit of escapism beautifully, and the action is well handled. I enjoyed this. It's not something that I'll probably go back and rewatch, but you know what? Like I've said, we expect a certain thing from Liam, Liam Neeson action films now. It delivers it. If you want a bit of escapism, go watch it. And the second film landed on Netflix this week called Monster, and it tells the story of Steve Harmon, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr., a 17-year-old film student with bright prospects whose life is changed when he's charged with murder after a convenience store holdup goes wrong. The film cuts back and forth as it shows us his journey from a smart and likeable student from Harlem attending an elite school to his meeting of gang members who he's implicated with to the trial itself. Anthony Mandler directs his first feature outing, having spent a career over the past two decades directing music videos. And sadly, he appears to have forgotten that the two are not necessarily the same thing, especially when trying to send a powerful message. There's a choppiness to the editing, 
coupled with some strange filter choices that make it look like an overlong hip-hop music video, only with dramatic intentions. In addition, the choice of inserting a couple of film studies classes actually serve to highlight the film's weakest elements. One of the inserted scenes is talking about having a choppy and strikingly visual style is not enough as a filmmaker without a strong narrative. And it kind of reflects on this film. And the other one is a talk about Rashomon, which the film is clearly trying to emulate with multiple perceptions of events underlying them. Throw in an ending that serves to muddy the message that the film thinks it's telling. And the result is a sub-average film that thinks it's more important than it actually is. Some solid names in the cast, Jennifer Hudson, Jeffrey Wright, Tim Blake Nelson, John David Washington, but they aren't handed the material to work with and the courtroom scenes lack impact. Even Kelvin Harrison Jr., who impacted in Chicago 7 as Fred Hampton, fails to engage in the lead role, although he does try his hardest, but he's let down by their direction choices around him. And the final review this week is the Academy Award-nominated Pinocchio, from director Matteo Garoni. Uh, This Italian adaptation of the original Italian story is a lot more faithful to that original fairy tale than Disney's version is. I've never been a huge fan of the Disney version of the story. I feel that it's a little too light and twee compared to what the actual novel version is. The story is basically the same. Geppetto's puppet creation Pinocchio magically comes to life with dreams of becoming a real boy. Easily led astray, Pinocchio tumbles from one misadventure to another as he's tricked, kidnapped and chased by bandits through a wonderful world full of imaginative creatures. From the belly of a giant fish to the land of toys and the field of miracles. Now, I quite enjoyed this film it's not a perfect representation of Pinocchio but it's closer to the book and visually it's sublime the makeup designs of Pinocchio looks like a proper wooden boy hauntingly at at times but so realistic and fits perfectly within the world setting the fantasy imagination of the talking animals really have a better credibility to them And the whole tale is brought to life by the fantastic cast that embody the characters with the unique voices. Now, important to note that this is available in subtitled and English dubbed versions. Do yourself a favour, watch the subtitled version because the English dubbing is, it's a little too cartoonish. Uh, Whereas the original Italian version, it treats it like the serious story that it should be. And coming over the next week, films to keep a lookout for. So Now TV and Sky have The Secrets We Keep, which sees Numi Rapace in a taut post-World War II suspense drama as a Romanian woman rebuilding her life in the American suburbs when she spies a former German soldier in her neighbourhood. Over on Netflix, a sci-fi film Oxygen, directed by Alexander Azure. This thriller follows a woman who wakes up from cryogenic freezing with no memory of who she is and she must find a way to remember who she is in order to survive and the woman in the window sees Amy Adams play an agoraphobic child psychologist who watches a family across the street via her window but when a new family move in she witnesses a brutal crime but cannot quite put together the pieces of what really happened. Clearly drawing some inspiration from Rear Window here. Uh, Julianne Moore, Gary Oldman and Anthony Mackie also star in this one. So that's a few films to keep a lookout for on the services this coming week. Uh, Just as uh, an add-on to that, I finally caught up with, yes, and I know it's a couple of years too late, (laughs) but it landed only recently on Netflix, and that is Men in Black International. 
Now, I'd heard so many bad things about this film that I went into it expecting to hate it, expecting to rip it to shreds. And you know what? It kind of deserves to be ripped to shreds, but maybe because my expectation and the bar was set so low that I actually quite enjoyed it. The one thing that I really disliked about it was Chris Hemsworth playing exactly the same role that he played in Thor Ragnarok. But other than that, it was quite an enjoyable romp. You could tell that it had been edited to pieces. And from what I gather, the script bears no relation to the first draft and the draft that was sold. But to kill an hour and a half with some flashy special effects and a dynamic look to it by F. Gary Gray, it passed an hour and a half quite reasonably well. Don't hold your breath expecting something as classic as Men in Black 1, but it's the best we've got for now. Yeah, it's disposable nonsense. Yeah, it's, disposable it, nonsense. it's no more than that. And clearly it was a box office flop as to why we've not uh, had Men in Black International 2. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thanks for joining us, Tris. But before you go, we're going to ask you what your neat thing is. So every week, Andy and I do a neat thing, things that we've watched, enjoyed, uh, read, whatever it is over the last week. Tris, what is your neat thing? I absolutely love your neat things every episode. It always makes me smile. Uh, My neat thing is tied in with my love of comic books and something I, I... Well, it'll be interesting to see if you two appreciate it or know about it. I have a funny feeling you will. Um, I started collecting comics back in the 80s, and I was into all the superhero stuff, Marvel, DC, like most comic book fans are. But uh, courtesy of Marvel's epic line, I discovered a series that had nothing to do with superheroes, took a very familiar concept, but stuck it out in space. And that concept was that of the French Legionnaires. Basically, instead of it being army guys from around the world uniting uh, some real rough cuts uniting to fight the good fight it's alien races and various weird creatures all been put into this thing known as the alien legion and we follow the main story of a group called force nomad through 20 issues of the first volume 18 issues through the second volume which ironically i started reading the second volume in 87 first and then i realized oh this is volume two they're referencing all these things that have happened and all these characters that are dead now but i need to know who they are right i'm going to go back to it uh so that suddenly showed me that comic books could be something so much more so i've had a love of alien legion for for decades now and this weekend i dug them out of my box i've got all the issues that were present uh, that were printed in the 80s and the 90s and i've started my massive marathon reread of them and it's more than neat it's like ultra neat it's an absolutely fantastic series uh, pen, uh penciled by some great artists and written by carl potts and chuck dixon and uh it's a part of my teenage years that i'm really enjoying as now as i'm in my late 40s um revisiting uh, and enjoying once more so that's my neat thing for this week fantastic i remember it very very well one of the uh, marvel's epic yeah. line andy what have you got so i i was torn i've got about four different neat things that i want to draw on but i'm only going to draw on one of them this week i'm going to keep the rest for future weeks and the one that's took the top of my list this week is because of the lowering of the restrictions indoor meetings of two households can take place from next week now this means that for people like me who've been hoarding board games over the past year that have not been able to play I can now have my sister and her fella come round and we can start working through all these games. We can hang out, we can chat, we can play, we can eat, whatever, inside the house. Not just out in the garden, but inside the house. I've got a backlog of stuff to play and boy, I can't wait. Because as much fun as it's been playing virtually online through software such as Tabletop Simulator or the absolutely excellent boardgamearena.com website, seriously, 
I've mentioned it a few times. Check it out. Nothing beats being able to play a game face-to-face and see the panic in your opponent's eyes as they realise they've missed your long-term strategy and inevitable decimation is impending. Yes, I'm a bit of a psycho when it comes to tabletop games and I just can't wait to get these small groups back together with people who I know have been careful and cautious when it comes to contact with people and have been obeying the rules. I'm not going to just invite any old person willy-nilly in, but I can get my close family and my close friends around to catch up on things. My neat thing is, and we've mentioned this over the last couple of weeks because it has been so darn good, I caught the last episode the other day of Invincible, the animated series based on the Image Comics that's currently on Amazon Prime. Great voice cast with Steve Yoon, Sandra Oh, and the always amazing J.K. Simmons. For those who've not seen it, the series uh, revolves around Mark Grayson, a 17-year-old kid whose father turns out to be Omni-Man and his transformation into a superhero from being a kid under the guidance of his father has been at the heart of this series. And then it takes a dark turn. And boy, is it a graphic dark turn. This is one of the most violent things I've ever seen. But also, it would it kind of makes sense in, 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 in superhero lore. Uh, you do get an awful lot of civilian casualties through this and the death rate and the destruction rate is as high as Godzilla versus King Kong. It's been a great series, thoroughly enjoyed it. And the good news is Amazon has renewed the series for a second and a third season. And apparently there's a live action cinema version in the works as well. It's a great series and that's Invincible. And that's it for us at The Film File. We'll be back next week with a brand new show I'll see you then, Andy. See you next time. And in the meantime, strange things are afoot at the Circle Cave.